Blog Talk Radio. podcast on the app Stitcher, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at 76ers Report. And, uh, you know, Mike, the playoffs are now, you know, out in full force. Um, I don't know if you were able to catch it today, but uh, my brother actually had a great uh, sit-down interview with LeBron James just about that, you know, journey that they're about to embark, uh, you know, against the Celtics in that first-round matchup. Uh, were you able to catch any of that, Mike? Yeah, I did, actually. I saw it uh, this morning for a little while. You did great work, as always. And uh, it just made me, more than anything, it just made me really excited for the time period when... I mean, the NBA playoffs are great in general. I get excited regardless. But uh, listening to the passion that LeBron talked to, like, talked with Dave about, just made me excited for, you know, the time when the Sixers are ready to make their own playoff push and we can actually rally behind a team we think has a chance to be a contender. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know... I wasn't always, you know, a LeBron fan throughout his career. I thought definitely the decision was, uh, you know, not one of his finest moments as a yeah. pro. And, um, you know, I definitely was not rooting for him in that, you know, first title with Miami. Um, but, you know, I, you got to respect a guy for coming back home and, you know, really trying to put in that, you know, last title run, um, you know, to add to his legacy. Um but, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of good series going on overall throughout the league. Um, you know, I like the competition in, uh, you know, that Wizards-Raptors series. Uh, the Bucks-Bowls was pretty exciting. Uh, Mavs-Rockets last night. Even, you know, the Warriors-Pelicans uh, had some exciting moments as well. Uh, but, you know, what's the most memorable Sixers playoff game, uh, you know, that you had the opportunity to go to? Wow, that is a tough question. I mean, obviously the most memorable playoff game that I can remember, I think, is the same one that pretty much anyone from our generation has would be, of course, that game one in the 2001 finals. Uh, my my favorite personal memory that I attended would probably be that same season, uh, 2001. I went to the um, the second round game against the Raptors, the second home game in that series. Uh, that series ended up going a full seven games, if you remember, and Vince Carter missed that uh, like turnaround from the corner. Uh, otherwise, the Raptors would have been going to the uh, the conference finals. But, uh, 
Yeah, the Sixers won. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it was it was game two of the series, I believe. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a close game. I mean, obviously, anytime seeing Iverson was always was you know that was always a treat. And that team, especially, I feel like um, you know that year they just had that. You know, that heart, that was the team that had, you know, the MVP, Larry Brown, Coach of the Year, Matumbo, Defensive, McKee, Sixth Man of the Year. And uh, just, you know, being – being uh, I lived in Scranton at that point. I, I, was, I didn't live in Philly yet, so I came – I was in uh, yeah. eighth grade, and I made, I made the trip up with my dad all the way, you know, out to Philly. <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, just a memory that I still have, a really exciting experience to go get to watch the team, you know, compete to get to the finals. Um, what about you? What's your favorite playoff Sixers memory? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny you said, you know, that that series specifically because uh, that's what I, you know, was going to say. I was actually at that, you know, game seven um, in that Raptors-Sixers series. Oh, right. And, um, you know, people don't really remember, you know, you remember the series of just Iverson and Vince Carter going back and forth, you know, 50-point games, um, you know, pretty much every game in that one. And, uh, you know, people don't really remember that, that game seven where both of them were – you know, kind of struggling shooting the ball. Um, you know, Iverson just shot 8 of 27 from the field for 21 points. But, you know, surprisingly, I, I feel like this um, doesn't get mentioned enough. He had 16 assists in that game um, to, you know, propel the Sixers to that, that victory. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll always remember Vince Carter, you know, clanging that game-winning attempt off the rim to give the Sixers that, you know, series win. You know, Iverson running down the court with his finger in the air. And, uh, you know, it was truly one of, you know, the great series of uh, basketball history. And, um, you know, I think it was uh, a fitting way to end, you know, just coming down to that last shot in game seven. Um, But, you know, I I have been to some other, you know, great series. I I thought that the Sixers always had, you know, a great time playing uh, the, the Orlando Magic in the playoffs and, um, you know, I, I was at the one game there where Thaddeus Young had that game-winning uh, turnaround, and um, you know, there there were a couple other good ones. Um, I was at the the Lou Williams uh, deep three to beat the Heat, and in, uh, in that oh, one yeah. uh, that one game. But yeah, I mean, that's I think without a doubt the most memorable game. Just the Sixers advancing and. Um, just the energy in the arena was so electric. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking of the playoffs and uh, the Sixers' chances, um, you know, making it in the future, do you, do you see that um, happening maybe as early as next season for this team? Uh, I mean, I definitely think it's a possibility. I feel like that's a that's a point of, like, contention at this point between a lot of the fans. You know, is next year going to be the year that, you know, the win-loss column really comes into play and the team, you know, starts to factor in wins. You know, Brett Brown mentioned in his his end-of-the-season exit interviews the other day that this past season the win-loss column wasn't even in the, uh, you know, the team's top ten, you know, most important list of things going into the season, meaning it was basically an afterthought. And he said that, uh, you know, next year that would switch and that they would start focusing on winning. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely tough to peg whether or not they could literally land a playoff spot, but I, I absolutely think it's, it's a possibility, if not next year, within the next two years. Um, you know, like you said, we started watching the, the Eastern Conference playoff series, and, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of talent, especially at the top, but there's also, you know, the bottom three spots were wide open for, um, you know, the better half of the season. Uh, I feel like it's a, mm-hmm. it's a top-heavy conference. 
And I think, uh, uh, you know, a quick an, an infusion of young talent like the Sixers have could – I don't see any reason why they couldn't make a jump. You know, everyone keeps comparing the Sixers to the Bucks, um over the past two years, like last year to this year, how they went from last to first. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think the team is necessarily built uh, identically or anything like that, but I don't see any reason with, you know, Embiid coming back, the continued development of Noel – um, whoever they add in the draft, you know, uh, Covington, you know, developing these young guys. Well, they couldn't, you know, make it interesting at least. And, you know, maybe if not next year, you know, challenging for an A spot, at least, you know, starting to build up and improve the win-loss record. And then the next year, 2016-17, when, uh, you know, Sarit comes over, Embiid has a year under his belt and everything, then, you know, by then, absolutely, I don't see any reason why not even make the playoffs, but I don't see why they couldn't be challenging to be, you know, one of the better squads in the East. Yeah, you you got to think that the East kind of has those, uh, those top five spots locked up um, between, you know, the Hawks, the Cavs, uh, the Bulls, um, the Raptors, and the Wizards. But, um, you know, that, that bottom three, they they might be able to make a run at it. I mean, um, obviously the Bucks should get better with uh, Jabari Parker back in the lineup. Um, the Heat will definitely be a better team next year. Uh you know, the same with the Celtics and the Hornets just kind of had an off year. The Pacers were without uh, Paul George for pretty much the entire season. So, um, you know, a a lot of teams will definitely get better, um, which is obviously not a good thing for the Sixers uh, trying to make that run. But I don't think it's, you know, completely out of the question. They'll obviously have a lot of work to do in the off season. Uh, but, you know, if Embiid gets really comfortable in the offense early on, uh, you know, there there is a shot that they could get it done. Um, I think how they start the season will kind of set the tone for the rest of the season. And, you know, right now if I were to, you know, make a bet, I'd say – or maybe like 55 to 60 percent um, that they could get that seven or eight seed next season, um, but you know they'll need to come close to you know 40 wins for that to realistically happen, which means you know 20 more wins next season. And uh, I feel like there was at least 10 to 15 games this season where they're kind of right there at the end of the game, but you know they didn't really have that offense to get them over the top. So. Uh, it should be yeah. interesting to, you know, see what happens, um, especially with Embiid back and likely, you know, another scoring wing um, added in the draft. You know, you think D'Angelo Russell, um, Manuel Moutier, even maybe Justice Winslow joins that uh, conversation. So, um, you know, I, I think they should definitely at least start to be competitive both defensively and offensively next season. Um, but to get into the playoffs, that's another story. Um so, Mike, uh, you know, it was a very interesting night on Wednesday. Um, Thaddeus Young in Brooklyn spoiled the Sixers' <laughs> chance at that Miami pick coming over. Um, you know, they're now left with uh, just that high lottery pick in the upcoming draft. Um, how disappointed are you in the way things kind of shook out, um, you know, to end the season for that extra pick coming over? Yeah, I mean, I can't lie. That was uh... – it was pretty disappointing, and, uh, you know, it seemed in the last few days there pretty much everything that could have, went, you know, worked against the Sixers did, um, you know, over the last two weeks from just the Thunder, you know, falling completely out of the playoff race. And, uh, you know, like you said, Brooklyn sneaking into the playoffs there, Miami kind of, uh, you know, crumbling down the stretch. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely disappointing. Uh, you know, you went from potentially having four 
four new guys, first round picks to add to the lineup. To you know, you may be looking at probably just one. Um, I believe I was looking earlier. I think there's still a 17% chance that uh, the Lakers pick would swing over, and like a 9% chance that the uh, you know the Sixers could land the Heat pick. So I mean, mm-hmm. I'm doing my best, uh, doing my best opt- uh you know, pulling my best optimism out as a fan and hoping at least one of those comes over. But I mean, at this point, like you said, it's not looking it's not looking great, and they they might just have to settle with that one high lottery pick, um, you know, which isn't isn't the worst thing in the world. I believe we talked about it last week. It'll be, you know, the picks, it's not like they disappear. You know, they're still in our possession, and they'll be coming in in the future, which will, you know, as the team continues to get better, it'll be nice to have staggered picks coming in, you know, constant infusions of talent, which is something that some of the better teams have been able to do to sustain their, you know, their strength as they continue to grow. But, uh, you know, at this point, the rebuild with, with you know, with the team being so young and still ready to be molded, you would have liked to have at least a couple of guys coming in together at the same time, the same year to kind of build upon. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess up until the draft ladder, I'm just over here keeping my fingers crossed that, you know, we get a little bit of luck from the basketball guys. Yeah, and, you know, how fitting is it that Thaddeus Young, uh, you know, traded <laughs> to the Timberwolves, whether he um, – you know, requested the trade or not, um, you know, to end his season, um, stopping the Sixers to get that extra pick, which was the pick that was traded for him in that deal. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's pretty ironic right there. If I didn't know Thad better, I would say that it was something he like a little personal jab at the team. <laughs> Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, I'm just extremely disappointed. Look, you know, I get that there's always next year, but I think the talent level in this draft specifically is very high. Uh, You know, you look at guys like Stanley Johnson, Jerry Grant, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, or, you know, Kelly Oubre. uh, And, you know, you see a lot of scoring talent there, which you could have, you know, added with one of those later picks. And I'm not sure we'll see that in next year's draft. Um, You know, all all of those three picks, in my opinion, would be, you know, much worse next season with uh, the Thunder obviously improving, Miami obviously improving. You know, the Lakers will still be, you know, not great, but they'll improve a little bit at least. And, um, you know, uh, we all know that, you know, that Thunder pick will be in the late 20s. Miami could see, you know, maybe a resurgence and, uh, I would say that Lakers pick is maybe in the six to ten range next season, um, but we'll we'll see what happens. I, I can't help but feel like this was a punch in the gut to the entire organization, just the way things shook out there at the end. Um, and yeah. you know, like you just talked about earlier, uh, I think you actually tweeted it out that seventeen point two percent chance for the Lakers one to maybe come over if two che- two teams jump into that uh, draft lottery, um, you know, and uh, I think it's just yeah 9.1% for that heat pick to possibly come over if a team behind them, you know, jumped into the, the lottery. So are you still, you know, holding on to some kind of hope for uh, the draft lottery night? I mean, I'm trying to, trying to hold on to a little something. Maybe, you know, that Lakers pick would be nice. I really think that, like you just mentioned, with the uh, a lot of the mid like lottery talent scoring wise in this draft, it, it seems like it would be a nice draft to have a similar setup to 
you know, where they had last year where they had a top three pick to take one of, you know, like the, the main talent guys, and then they had an, a little later lot, li- later lottery pick, um, you know, that they used, uh, you know, to take a flyer on somebody like Sarik. Uh, you know, I think that this, like you mentioned, with the talent in this draft, especially at the wing position, uh, you know, I feel like this would be a great setup if they wanted to take someone like, you know, D'Angelo Russell or Moutier with that, you know, their, their own first lottery pick, and then they could, you know, somehow squeak back in in the top, you know, 10 or 10 to 12 range and get someone like you like mentioned, like Stanley Johnson or Ubre. That would just, you know, I think that would be great for the organization moving forward. So, yeah, I mean, for the rest of the month, I'm going to do my best, get all my good luck charms and keep my <laughs> fingers crossed and hope, hope that at least one of those picks can come over. What about you? You holding out some optimism for that yourself? No, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I'm not going to get my hopes up at this point. Uh, I just think that, you know, the Sixers should focus on, um, you know, who they're going to draft with that top pick. But uh, something that, you know, nobody has really written about uh, yet is just the slew of second rounders the Sixers will also have in the draft. So that should be interesting. You know, according to Sixers beat writer Tom Moore, um, they'll have the number 35, 37, 47, 58, and 60, which is the final pick in uh, that June 25th draft. Um, you know, do you think that the Sixers might be able to trade some of those picks to maybe get back a late first rounder or maybe even, you know, a package of like Tony Roten with some of these picks to do the same thing? Yeah, that's actually a great point you made there, Jeff. I mean, ideally, I think we'd all like to say that. But I think that um, I think people, you know, some general managers across the league, maybe some of because of what Hinky's been able to do in, you know, in Houston with Chandler Parsons and guys like that, and then over in Philly over his two drafts. I think that the value of second-round pick is starting to get noticed um, a little bit. There was a point, you know, a few years ago where a second-round pick would, you know, could be laughed off. I think at this point, though, especially when you have them at the quantities the Sixers do, that they would be um, appealing in certain trade situations, especially if coupled with, you know, a guy like Roten like that. And, um, you know, I forget last year at the draft I was down there it's in the media pit. It was almost hard to keep track of some of the second-round moves hmm. that he was making. Um, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the Jordan McRae deal at the end and it uh, involves flipping a couple of picks and, like, dropping a couple of spots. Um, and, you know, we are, we obviously know Sam's always going to keep his eyes open. So, yeah, I would – I would think that he would absolutely try to do something with a couple of those second-round picks and package it to, you know, at least move back up into the first round. I can't imagine that he wouldn't want at least two first-round picks in this draft, you know, one way or another if we don't end up getting them from, um, you know, the Heat or the Lakers. And do you, do you think Roden might hold uh, trade value at that point, or do you think it's too early in his, uh, you know, rehab to really, you know, move him in a trade? That's a great question, too. I mean, I think he would have to hold some weight. I mean, I think the fact that we haven't seen him on the court for, you know, the half, the second half of the season probably hasn't helped. But, um, you know, I remember before he went down right around, you know, probably like a month before the trade deadline, there was uh, some speculation popping up that he, he was gaining, getting some interest from some of the teams out west looking to make a playoff push, you know, like the, the Clippers. I think there was one report that mentioned something about his old team, the Grizzlies, being interested in him. And, uh, you know, he's he's really intriguing as a prospect as far as his, you know, ability to just get the ball to the basket, uh, you know, put his head down and let no one stop him, kind of get to the rim. He proved that he was honestly one of the best in the league at that. And, uh, you know, you don't know if the Sixers want that or need that at this point, but you would have to think that there's 
some team out there that would be looking to him as a you know, potential bench guard, the combo guard to come in and just put up points quickly. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not getting crazy and saying he he would command like a first round pick value or anything like that. But yeah. I feel like if the right if the right situation came along, he was maybe coupled with a you know a decently high second round pick or something like that. Yeah, I don't I don't see why he wouldn't be able to generate a little bit of interest. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think both of these uh, things are possible. You know, packaging picks, packaging Roten with picks. Uh, you know, I think it's possible to get back into the first round. Is it likely? Maybe not. You know, the track record of Sam Hinkie, I feel like a lot of uh, GMs aren't really uh, pushing trades uh, through Sam much anymore <laughs> yeah. just because of, you know, how many <laughs> wheeling and dealing moves he's done over the past uh, two seasons. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't run it past Tanky to try to do, you know, a trade like that if there was truly a player that he wanted available, you know, in the late 20s of the draft. Um, otherwise, we've seen, you know, Hinky's patience in getting guys like KJ who fall to the second round. Um, you know, these picks are assets nonetheless, so it should be interesting to see, you know, what they might get back in a, a first-round deal on draft night. But uh, once again, this is the State of Independence podcast. I'm your host, Jeff McMenamin, alongside Mike Lukowski, Blomain. And uh, so Draft Draft Express put on Twitter uh, the projected salary cap increases in the the coming years. Um, So next season, it's going up to $67.1 million, and uh, 2016 up to $89 million, and uh, that following season all the way up to $108 million. Um, I mean, first of all, Mike, how is this going to affect the free agency in the coming years? And is this going to hurt Philly if they don't make a splash this summer on a guy like Kwai, Jimmy Butler, or uh, Wesley Matthews? Jeff, that's a great question. I've actually been uh, reading a little bit about, you know, the the new salary caps. They released those numbers the other day. And, uh, yeah, it does seem, well, you know, obviously, first of all, as far as it, it's going to affect the whole market in the way that, you know, I mean, contracts are going to expand exponentially. So anyone that's signed this summer, to, you know, underneath, bound by the current rules, well, first of all, the play, any players aren't going to be looking to sign long, you know, longer-term deals this summer. We might see a lot of shorter deals. But um, mm-hmm. any player that gets locked up this summer is, you know, two or three years down the road, if they do have that sort of contract, they're going to be looked at as a bargain. Um, just with, you know, the expanding numbers, um, you know, for a guy like you just mentioned, like a Kawhi Leonard or Jimmy Butler, if you could, you know, wrap them up for four years under the current system in two years, when the cap expands, these guys are going to be literally like looked at as a bargain. Um, and the problem Mm -hmm. is with that, uh, it does come back to hurt the Sixers because, uh, you know, one of the aspects of this rebuild that they've been credited for and that they've done well has been exactly that has been, um, you know, developing and creating cap space, which was literally untouched almost until, I mean, that the JaVale McGee signing took a hit out of it, but there's still a a big chunk of unused cap space that the team has been basically just sitting on for since they last year when they started clearing out um, the roster and, you know, everyone was looking at that as this a great asset that was not going to go anywhere. You know, it was kind of – it was staying there. But with the shift in the salary cap now blowing up, this summer basically is the last one where the Sixers are going to have that distinct uh, salary cap advantage over other teams. You know, once next summer comes, all the teams that necessarily don't have space that they've carved for themselves like the Sixers did now 
we'll get a built-in boost through the cap, and that'll kind of even the field. This year is the, really mm-hmm. the only remaining year going into the market where the Sixers have, you know, a leg up on a lot of other potential suitors because they have, you know, more cap space to offer them. And the issue with that is, you know, it you would make you think that they would have to go out or at least try to go out and use some of that space this summer since they'll be getting the boost next summer. But, you know, a lot of the guys that you mentioned that are going to be free agents this year, you have to wonder if, you know, the teams would even be willing, like, to let, you know, it's, it's difficult to imagine the Spurs letting Kawhi Leonard walk to sign somewhere else. <laughs> or, yeah. You know, j- with the way Jimmy Butler's improved and developed this season, it's just, you know, it's, it's tough to imagine, you know, some of the, their, the current teams letting these guys go um, this summer of free agency. So I think, you know, I do, I think this summer will be really interesting and, uh, to uh, you know, to the extent of seeing whether or not Sam is going to try to, you know, take advantage of some of this cap space. And for the first time, really, we haven't seen him. You know, we've seen a couple fringe free agent pickups here and there, but we really haven't seen the new brass of the organization try to go out and get a marquee guy or even, you know, a mid-level guy, you know, a, a well-known player. And I think this summer, you know, that'll it, be interesting and important to watch how they go about doing that and handling the cap. Yeah, it's kind of amazing just – uh how the Spurs and Bulls have all these high-profile players um, on their salary, but somehow, you know, can still afford to pay, uh, you know, these co- these guys in the upcoming free agency. But, um, you know, I think it does hurt them, Mike. Uh, this is going to hurt a lot of the smaller market teams in the coming years. Uh, you know, when the, the Knicks, Lakers, and Celtics have all this money to spend once again, you'd have to think, uh, you know, they'd outdraw teams like the Sixers. Um you know, I could be proven wrong, but I think it's definitely troubling. Uh, I think the Sixers should take advantage of their financial position now, uh, you know, before things might become a little tougher down the road. Um, but, you know, Josh Harris said in his exit interview on Wednesday that, you know, he's in it for the long haul with the Sixers. Uh, he wants the team to become a winner again. And knowing that the value of the team has uh, skyrocketed, skyrocketed, uh, and seeing how much money the Clippers sold for. Is there any way he decides to dump the team if, uh, you know, a good offer is made down the line? I mean, that that's definitely a tough question. Uh, I mean, it's something you have to really get into his mind about as far as business-wise. There's no doubt that over the past, even, honestly, three, four, five years, like you mentioned with the sale of the Clippers, um, that the value of NBA franchises has, has skyrocketed, I believe, I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe that the Sixers were purchased for around 280 million. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back in back when Josh Harris and his uh, company bought them, and you have to think that even with you know the the struggles over the past couple seasons, that that team at this point would be able to be sold for at least. I mean, a minimum twice that. You'd, you'd like to. You'd think that the Sixers could fetch at least 500 million on the open market if the Clippers are going for a couple billion. And, you know, when talking about money like that, it's really impossible to uh, really, you know, judge or guess what someone might do. But with that being said, as far as Josh Harris, I mean, I've had the honor of meeting him a couple times, not the honor, but I've met him a couple times. And he does seem like a guy that, uh, you know, he seems dedicated to the team. Uh, He seems invested and involved. And so he, you know, really cares. And he certainly seems to be comfortable and confident in what Sam Hankey has been doing. He's backed him uh, both media and publicly like numerous times so i mean not if the right offer came along of course i mean 
I would, I would assume he would consider it, but it doesn't seem like he's actively out there looking to do a pump and dump and just trying to boost up the team and dump them for, at the, you know, for the first suitor. Um, at least that's how he comes across to me. What do you think? Yeah, I've had the privilege to meet him a couple of times too. And, uh, you know, he, he might not be the greatest public speaker in the world, but I, I think that he is, you know, a very financially savvy guy and he, he does, uh, you know, um, love the team to a certain extent. He wants them to succeed. Obviously, he'll succeed if they succeed. So um, it's a mutual beneficial relationship there. Um, but, you know, he's a very financially savvy guy. I, I think he, it would be pretty stupid for him not to, you know, at least listen to the offers um, being given given to him for the team. Um you know, he bought them for dirt cheap, like you said, that like two hundred eighty million. I mean, who am I to say that's dirt cheap? But <laughs> just uh, seemingly for what the Clippers sold for, um, you know, it just seems like a pretty cheap price. And uh, you know, if he wanted to sell high, um, I don't know what kind of offer he'd be looking for, but um, I would say something similar <laughs> to that. Um, right. I mean, I, I like Josh. I, I think he's done a hell of a job building a culture around this team again. And, um, you know, I, I'm not completely sold, though, that he wouldn't take an offer like that if one was given to him. Um, yeah. But, you know, Mike, uh, going back to the, the playoffs for a little bit, um, you know, did you get to see MCW in, uh, you know, his first playoff game? And if so, what do you think of uh, his play? I did. Uh, yesterday, I literally spent the day watching um, all four of the playoff games. The first day of NBA playoffs is kind of like the college tournament to me. That's the first weekend where there's just games wall-to-wall all day. Uh, it's one of my favorite sporting days of the year. Um, and uh, Mike, Mike's game is one that I was really looking forward to watching just because, you know, of his history with the team and the organization. Um, and, you know, it didn't go so well for him. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It, uh, he had trouble. I mean, you know, he's obviously matched with Derrick Rose, which isn't—it's uh, not the easiest matchup for anyone. But you know, he looked uh, overmatched at times. I'm gonna say he looking at his line right now. He only finished with nine points on a uh, four of thirteen from the field, uh, four rebounds, mm-hmm. three three assists, three turnovers for a, a negative seven. Um, it's not the way he, it wasn't the way he had been playing, you know, the past couple of weeks, he's kind of been playing really well for the Bucks, including that game in Philly last week where he put up 30. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to take too much out of it, ride him too hard. It was his first, obviously his first playoff game against the, you know, experienced and talented Bulls team. It was welcoming, you know, Derek Rose back into the playoff lineup. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say his first appearance definitely left some to be desired. Did you end up catching any of his performance? I did, and you know it. It reminded me of everything I saw, you know, with him in the Sixers uniform. Just you know, <laughs> clanging shots off the uh, the backboard, um, you know, tossing up kind of errant layups um, when he was driving into the paint. And um, you know, he was kind of looking for that guy cutting down the paint a couple times on his drive, but it just seemed like, you know, he was really just kind of shaking up maybe the nerves of his first playoff game. But on, on the other side, um, you know, Derek Rose just looked like his old self out there. Um, just unbelievable. Um, you know, that explosion that you usually see from him was really evident, um, you know, getting into the paint and 
really dunking with authority a couple of times there. Um, but, you know, are, are you happy for Derek to, you know, play the way he did? Absolutely. Um, you know, anytime I, an athlete like that, it's just great for the league to have have him come back. And he's been through so much. As obviously, you and me remember the, his original injury came in that first-round series against the Sixers back in his MVP season of 2012. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Sixers ended up taking that series against the Bulls. And D-Rose has just never been, you know, never been himself ever since. There's really no way to sugarcoat it. He's been... You know, he's had shown some flashes here and there, but injury issues have kept popping up. And, uh, it's you know, last night, like you said, it was it was almost a throwback D-Rose performance. He was, you know, splashing threes, uh, driving to the hole, finishing, setting up his teammates. And he just he looked like he had that, you know, that old Derrick Rose step and swagger to him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's great for the league to have him back. He was always – he was kind of like a, a Russell Westbrook-type player before Russ was – blew up over the past couple of years. I mean, yeah. back his, in, his, in his MVP year, he was, uh, you know, second to none in, as far as exciting guys to watch in the NBA, that he was just a one-man show every night. And, uh, you know, he, he might never get quite back to that level, but just to see him, you know, play like he did last night, a throwback performance to show that he still has, you know, those abilities in him and he still has the ability to lead a team, that makes that Bulls team really scary. I mean, outside of the Cavs and the Hawks, they're – you know, they're a little dark horse to come out of the East, especially if D-Rose can stay healthy and continue to play like that. I was just about to say that. I mean, it, you got to think that, you know, they're all of a sudden back into that talk as, you know, one of the best teams of D-Rose is playing the way he did, um, you know, last night every game. Um, they're going to be really scary uh, in this year's playoff. Um, but it was pretty funny, you know, I decided to go back and watch, you know, that uh, series-clinching win that the Sixers had over the Bulls. And if you look at, you know, both of the team's rosters, just the overhaul since then, it it just kind of feels like that game was 20 years ago uh, when they won. Um, You know, everyone pretty much is on different teams on, uh, you know, both of those teams, except for, you know, D. Rose and Noah, obviously. Noah, Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, looking back to that, uh, just how crazy is that? Just to think of, you know, 2012, it seems like so, so long ago. It really does. I mean, I, I remember I wrote an article last year um, for Philly.com. I, I believe it was right when they traded Sad, just about how quickly, um, you know, Hinky really was able to just come in there and just dismantle the entire lineup and switch it all around. Uh, and like you said, it really does look in looking back at that lineup of the you know the team that went to the conference semis and lost in seven to the Celtics, compared to the team that the Sixers have now, it's like it's unbelievable how completely different it is. Uh, you know, no one no one remains. The team is totally different, and it's it's just funny that you know such great change can be made to an organization in such a short period of time. Yeah, and that uh, you know kind of brings up uh, another funny thing in this this year's playoffs. I think I'll end the show with this today. Um, Just, you know, how weird is it to see three former Sixers point guards have, you know, this extended minutes in uh, the NBA playoffs this year with, uh, you know, Drew Holiday for the Pelicans. Um, Evan Turner is about to, you know, play today for the Celtics and MCW like we uh, just talked about yesterday. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Actually, I'll take it even a little bit further, even past the point guard, just to see some guys that were X Sixers like contributing and uh you know, in such a big extent. You know, those three guards you just mentioned, Iguodala is a huge cog to that, you know, title favorite Warriors team. Same with Kyle Corver out here in the West or in the East, I mean, excuse me, there's a there's a lot of X Sixers and especially at the point guard position it's it's ironic because, you know, as it stands right now, the Sixers don't have a point guard of the future. <laughs> You know, we're looking in to get one into the draft, and then there's, you know, there's three guys around the league right now starting as point guards. Well, I guess Drew technically isn't isn't starting right now, but he was starting before mm-hmm. the injury. Um, yeah, three guys that are starting caliber point guards elsewhere playing in the playoffs. Well, the Sixers, you know, don't, you know, we're going back and forth between Isaiah Cannon and Ish Smith. But uh, even with that being said, I don't think I would take any of these, any of those three guys back. Uh, funny as it sounds, you know, they're all they're all finding success elsewhere, you know, going to the playoffs. But I don't think any of those three and Drew, uh, obviously Et or MCW are guys that you know I would, I would want to be the uh, you know the, the central point guard of the you know the team going forward. So I can't, I don't really look at it as like negatively. More just kind of ironic that these guys, especially the fact that Evan Turner is a a starting point guard in a playoff team. I'm actually pretty excited to watch him uh, square off against LeBron coming up here in about half an hour on ABC. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's just ironic. Uh, what do you think about it? Well, one guy I would take back, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like he's going to win that, that six-man-of-the-year award this year, Lou Williams. Lou, and, uh, you know, he, he, he did have uh, a rough first game in that uh, Raptors series um, against the Wizards. But, uh, you know, I, I think that he was one of my favorite Sixers, just, you know, his personality as well as, you know, himself as a person. Um, but, you know, what do you think of Lou Williams and, you know, him possibly winning that sixth man of the year award again for the Raptors? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically between him and uh, Crawford out in L.A. Uh, for that award, I would, I would probably guess. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, he, he didn't have his best performance yesterday. But, Lou, he's still, uh, you know, I watched a fair share of Raptors games this year. He really can still come in and just take a game over. And the funny, his skill set is, or at least his approach on offense, is real similar to what it was. You know, when he used to come in and close out quarters for the Sixers uh, a couple years ago, he loves the top of the key three-point range like ISO where he can just kind of go one-on-one against the defender and rock him back a little bit and either, you know, get into the paint and kick out or take that slow, like, feathery three-point shot he has. Um, hmm. You know, he's he is, he is a, just like you said, a, a straight weapon. Um, another guy that's obviously, a, you know, he's a starting caliber player in the league just coming into this huge role on the you know, playoff team as a sixth man. But, uh, yeah, I would have to agree with you. Out of those guys, he's probably one that I wouldn't mind having around still to come in and just, you know, put up points in a hurry. Um, who who's definitely uh, definitely deserving of that six-man award. And would you say, I, I mean, you know, Lou did, he tore his ACL too when he was on the Hawks, and it seems like, you know, he's back to, to full form um, after, you know, another season um, with the Raptors there, but... Um, do you think that, uh, you know, Tony Roten should be looking at a guy like Lou Williams as, as maybe someone he could develop into in the future? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I thought that before, actually. But I could see Tony playing a similar type role. Um, I mean, obviously, the shooting is miles apart. Lou's, you know, he's deadly at the time. It's one of his biggest assets where Tony is really underdeveloped in the, the shooting area. But as far as kind mm-hmm. of, 
maybe not maybe not being best suited as a starting guard in the league, but maybe as you know, just a, a bench guard that comes in that can, you know, just spark an offense. Uh, with energy and athleticism and getting the ball to the basket. Uh, in that way, I, I do see uh, Lou as the type of guy that Tony could model his game after. And, this, of course, you know, Tony should be working on that sh- his shot, uh, you know, a consistent three-point shot added into the rest of Tony's game would make him, you know, just that much more deadly on the offensive end. And, yeah, in that, in that capacity, I could see him playing a very similar role to something like that Lou Williams does out in Toronto. Well, Mike, uh, it was a great show today. Uh, enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Uh, once again, this is the State of Independence podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jessica Benjamin, alongside Mike Lukaski Blumain. Uh, you know, make sure to follow us on the app Stitcher or, uh, you know, on Twitter at 76ers Report. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be taking a short break until, you know, the, the draft talk kind of starts up a little bit. Um, but, you know, for myself and Mike, Enjoy your weekend here, uh, you know, the rest of it, and we'll see you, you know, next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Man, it was real cool in the school if we got good grades. I trade up base. The parents were taking to a 76 game. I got my game and there ain't no shame. Big shots of Mo Cheeks and Moses Malone. Julius Server called Philly is home. Bobby Jones, Daryl Dawkins, and Tony sinking threes. Rocky Bobo will come from South Philly. But if you want to make it on time to the show, there's only one road that you really have to know. So get to Fishtown without all that job. I suggest that you drive on I 95. Want to get downtown but feel in the fix. Get on that road. They call 676 the most expensive, expensive piece of interstate. The ever made a palace ain't famous, but they got the game.